Welcome back to Bruise Not Broken, Life with Glansman Thrombocenia. For those of you who are new to us, Glansman Thrombocenia is an extremely rare autosomal recessive disorder of the blood in which the platelets lack glycoprotein 2B3A. Hence, no fibrinogen bridging can occur and bleeding time is significantly prolonged. GT can be life-threatening and is estimated to affect one in one. This podcast is presented by the Glansman's Research Foundation and myself, Taylor. Peter, our producer, and today we are by an amazing advocate for the Glansman's community. In fact, the National Hemophilia Foundation presented her with the Mary M. Gooley Humanitarian of the Year Award this past August. A very big excited welcome to Miss Esme Vasquez. Thank you for having me here. I'm very excited. We are too. So Esme, before we dive into your work in patient advocacy, can you tell us a little bit about your journey with Glansman's? I was born and raised in Chicago, which is currently where I live. I was born in a very low-income neighborhood to immigrant parents. And I was diagnosed with at the age of one. So it was a very, obviously, a very difficult decision for my parents and trying to navigate the healthcare system and trying to navigate insurance and all the policy that comes with just a chronic condition. And while GT kind of led me to healthcare. So I am an occupational therapist. I work with children with special needs and I help those families kind of navigate the healthcare system. And I see there's a lot of similarities just overall, like dealing with a chronic condition. And I have always been such an advocate for families who are just dealing with any sort of like medical diagnosis. And I more recently, I have gotten more involved with the bleeding disorder community. I think my only regret is not doing it a lot, a lot earlier in my life and my career. How did you find yourself becoming an advocate for the bleeding disorder community? I mean, I for a long time, I always tried to get involved with the bleeding disorder community and I would try to attend events, but they were always very geared to hemophilia. And I never found anything there for me. It was always very, very hemophilia focused. So then I just took another way and I just focused on my career. And about two, three years ago, Dr. Valentino, who used to be my hematologist, reached out to me. And he was the one who mentioned, hey, we're doing a new initiative um, on research and we would like to see if you want to be involved. And I'm very excited to be involved with the bleeding disorder community. So I accepted that offer and I've been working with the National Research Blueprint for the past two years. Now, and for those of you who don't know, Dr. Lynn Valentino, he's the current CEO of the National Hemophilia Foundation. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. And the NHS, so it's been around since 1984. And as they've grown, they have done wonders within the hemophilia community. But they've noticed kind of the outline bleeding disorders, you know, such as Bernard Soulier, Von Willebrands, those which are rare, but not super ultra rare or anything. So they've been helping with those. But now, most recently, as you mentioned, when he reached out to you, they're starting to kind of focus a little bit more on those ultra rares. And so in their quest for helping the bleeding disorder community, they've launched kind of what you were starting to talk about, the National Research Blueprint. Tell me a little bit more about that. So the National Research Blueprint started, I believe, in 2020. So there was this whole initiative, and I think he will figure out, well, the hematology community is a little late. They are trying to engage the community to be part of research. From the very beginning of how an idea is created for a research study, 
to implementation to dissemination. She had shown that when the community members are involved in research, the outcomes are better, our quality of life is better, and our own healthcare outcomes is better. And I'm very familiar with it because I've been doing that in the disability community, when we create a research study, we engage the community. Like, what do you think of this research protocol? Is it something that you can participate? What is your feedback? What can you tell us? So I'm very is it familiar. worth pursuing? Is it worth oh. pursuing? Is it meaningful to you, right? right. What, are, what are some of the barriers that you can anticipate with participating in this research study? So the hematologist is trying to do the same thing. They're trying to engage the community and other areas of medicine are doing the same thing, engaging the community in research studies. So it started with some focus groups. They went out to different areas of the country and they asked the community, what's important to you in research? What matters to you? And from there, they started creating like these groups different categories that, and it was based right out of the community. So it's very kind of very grassroots. So that's how that whole started. And then eventually we created the state of the science to inform the community and the researchers, hey, the community has spoken. This is what's important to them. And this is where the research is going to be headed. And now we're doing the national research blueprint to see how we're going to kind of implement those state of the science questions that came up to the surface from the community. So it's very community-driven. It's very interesting to work with researchers who never work directly with the community, like side-by-side, a PhD, and just a member from the bleeding disorder community. I mean, it's our life experience. You know, we're living with this condition, so we have a lot of input to say. I'm sure it's eye-opening on both sides of the spectrum. The research side of it for the researchers to finally hear back from the community. And then for the community, too, to hear from the researchers what they're going through as well and what obstacles they face when they go forward with their own research. Correct. So, for example, one of our we're in different groups right now. So I am one of the co-chairs for the. So we called ourselves the lived experience experts because they wanted to call us subject matter experts. And there was a lot of confusion with that title. We don't have the name the lived experience experts. And we have a small little group. And in that group, we have a hematologist and we were talking about clinical trials, specifically gene therapy trials, because that's kind of the frontier of medicine. And when we were talking, I was telling him, I was like, it's very difficult when you think about the community and you want them to participate in these clinical trials and you want them to come two or three times a week for blood work, families work. Like if you are a single family house. Or even if you are a two-family household, two parents, and both parents work full-time, having to take time off three times a week to bring your child for a clinical trial is not always feasible for everybody. When we think about traveling or, or individuals who live in rural communities, you know, they have to be represented in the research trials. And that's one of the big things that I'm very vocal about, like diversity. And when we think about diversity, I think people only, only think ethnicity, socioeconomic status, and diversity also includes variety in medical diagnosis. Like we want research in ultra rare bleeding disorders. I obviously always say GT, everything is geared Mm -hmm. towards hemophilia. And we have an underserved community of of bleeding disorders and we want to advocate for those. And we, you know, we've mentioned individuals who live in rural areas. So we want to be very diverse in our clinical trials. That accessibility, I can see where that would be really important, especially for the ultra rares like Glansman's, because you may only have one or two people within the entire state. So 
we want to be able to make it accessible for them to participate in the clinical trial. We want to include diversity and making sure that everybody is accessible. And like you said, we have, we're such a small number. Like, how are we going to reach those individuals? Can you go to their home and do the blood draws instead of having them come to a clinic three times a week? So we're trying to provide solutions. And it is very eye-opening to the researchers because I think they're so focused in their research. They don't think globally and socially and from a broader mm -hmm. lens, everything that happens in a family and when they're trying to navigate a chronic condition, health insurance, were, you know, family responsibilities and after school activities, you know, juggling all that schedule. I can also see kind of, as we've done our work and everything this past couple of years, the bleeding disorder community itself is really small. And so everybody kind of knows everybody within like the research side of it or like the people who are working with these rare bleeding disorders and stuff. They tend, the doctors tend to know each other. and. I think that that might have to do, might contribute to the whole not realizing that not everybody within the actual ultra rare community who's affected by this disorder knows everybody. And so it kind of, it's that just, you know, if I know them, you know them, right? Right, <laughs> right. I'm starting to realize that. It's like, it's to know more and more people. And I'm yes. Yes. Or, you know, they'll be like, oh, well, this person has GT. You know them, right? And it's like, no, hold on. And you get really excited. Um, <laughs> now, are you the only person with Glansman's on this steering committee? Yes. I was looking it up on the National Hemophilia Foundation's website. Saw kind of how, like, they have it set up in working groups and everything. So... They did have a working group specifically for ultra rares. How did that work when you only have like one person with glances from there? Because everybody's experience is so different. So I wasn't in that group. So I'm not sure who the, the person, they asked me to be in that. And instead I chose to be in the diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay. So just to kind of, to let everybody know. So there's the community wanted more research on hemophilia A and B. They wanted more research on von Willebrand platelet dysfunction and other mucutaneous bleeding disorders. Ultra rares, that's the third one. The fourth one is priorities for health of women and girls and persons with the potential to menstruate. The fifth one was diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare services and research. And then the sixth one is just facilitating priority research in inheriting bleeding disorders. So those were the six groups in the state of the science. And I was in that health and equity one. So I'm not really sure how, how I work with the ultra rare and what their, their priority questions were in terms of like, I think more research in ultra rare. I agree with like your idea of going with the diversity one, because I feel like in general, working on that particular issue, I mean, it's going to help the Glansman's community eventually anyways. It's that whole encompass thing where let's let's fix this problem, let's fix this gap in care in order to help these communities that are, like you, like you were saying, they're underserved. Right. And, th and that's exactly how I felt too. Exactly how I feel like I can contribute as a female with an ultra rare bleeding disorder, I can give a lot of input also in that sense, how it is very difficult for us to navigate like our healthcare system with insurance and finding healthcare providers that understand GT. It's constantly advocating. 
It's like nonstop educating healthcare professionals on our diagnosis. So has anything in this experience surprised you? Was there anything that you weren't really expecting when it came to this working group that you're in? Was there an issue that you just weren't necessarily aware of? I realize that sometimes researchers don't really understand the policy with insurance. So obviously researchers go to the HTC, the hemophilia treatment centers, to do their research study and to look for participants in their research study. But I always keep telling them there's a whole group of individuals who can access, for whatever reason, those HTCs, whether it's because it's not within driving distance or maybe because they have an HMO or a Medicaid replacement plan that doesn't cover them for them to go to a research institution that has an HTC. Because one doctor was like, why don't they just transfer their care to an HTC? And I tell them, like, it's not always that easy. There's a lot of insurance that you have to deal with before you can transfer your care to an HTC. So there's all this policy that I have to kind of educate them that they don't deal with it. You know, it's us going to the doctors and getting our referrals and being this a healthcare system. This is why something like this is so important because you are raising these issues and you're saying, okay, yes get where you're coming from but at the same time like this is why that could be a problem and and you're I hate using this term again but you're opening up like you're you're making them aware of an issue that they just never really were and you know there was a long time where hemophilia treatment centers weren't even really discussed within the glancements community because it just was something that you know you got your hematologist familiar with your disorder and that's who you relied on was your one hematologist and your one hematology team. Whereas like bringing in anybody else into it could potentially complicate things. So now that these hemophilia treatment centers are, I guess, offering these resources a little bit more and they're a little bit more educated within GT, it's time to kind of start leaning on them a little bit more and, and, and having those opportunities open up. Right. You had to ask a super fun question. Okay. <laughs> so we saw you at the National Hemophilia Foundation Conference last August in Houston, and you were on a panel, cannot remember the name of the session, but you were on a panel and they asked a really good question. And it was like something along the lines of like, if money were no object, like what would you want? So this is a kind of a spin on this. If the world were a perfect place right now, how would you picture patient care for someone with glansmiths? One, I would like individuals with glansmiths to be able to choose what hematologist they want to go to. Because I know not everybody has that option. And I would want everybody to have access to the latest treatment and be aware of what their options are. I'm still even learning like all the different options, right? And I think fully transparent, fully accessible, money's not an option, insurance is not an option. You can have any treatment you want that's appropriate for you and have access to it. Not having to deal with appealing to an insurance company because your your treatment, your therapy got denied. And equal access, like not, not having to do with all the barriers that in the healthcare system places on you. Having to basically become like a health insurance expert. Full equitable care across the board to everybody. I completely agree. Completely agree. So 
you talked about how you're an occupational therapist and everything. And talked about how you kind of got into the patient seat for bleeding disorders and everything just kind of recently. What does the future look like for Esme? Where do you see this journey of yours going? I like the way that research is headed. I like that they are including the community. I like that research researchers, MDs, and PhDs now have to recognize somebody from the bleeding disorder community as an equal part of that research team. I think that's a nice direction that we're heading. I don't know if everybody's going to be happy with that because I think there's a lot of individuals who don't consider us experts, but I think we have a lot to offer and a lot that we can contribute. Like that having our voice heard in the entire research process, not just asking us to be a participant in a study, but asking us, what do you think the design of this study should look like? And obviously a PhD, they have a lot of resources and they're very experienced. But I think together as a team, with what we can bring to the table and what they can bring to the table, the research can be much stronger. Well, I think that there's a lot of stuff that, you know, people don't necessarily realize could be related to their GT. So when you fill out like one of those like data surveys or whatever, when it's not necessarily asking you about your life or like your own experiences and everything and not getting the whole picture, it's kind of hard to do it justice, you know, and and I have noticed that the surveys that are coming out now are are much more in-depth. They're asking more and more questions. You know, things like you'll see like mental health questions on there and everything. And then then you get into the questions of, okay, well, like we just recently realized, and I don't know why it was never brought up, but like SSRIs can hinder platelet functioning or hinder platelet counts. And so that right there. If you're dealing with depression and you're on antidepressants and you can't take SSRIs, okay, well then what's your other option if something doesn't work for you? So it's just good to kind of know the entire picture. This is so, you bring such a good point because that's a part of the diversity in the research study, right? We want the participants in research to be diverse. And that's one of the things that we're working on too. How do we recruit more diversity in clinical trials, especially if we're heading towards gene therapy and not all our genes are the same and now you're adding medication to it and all these other factors that can affect the efficacy of that trial. The more diverse the pool of participants is, the stronger that the results of that study are. So we got to make sure that we get individuals who are very diverse and maybe have some comorbidities if they have a mental health condition right. on top of that and they're taking medication and now they're going to do like gene therapy. How is all that going to affect everything? Like the physiology in our body is so complex. We need to get really diverse. And that's one of the things that I'm really passionate about. Making yeah. sure there's diversity and good representation in research trials. Well, And it's important too, because a lot of these, a lot of these disorders do have comorbidities, but when you have such a small sampling, you can't figure out what those could potentially be. So now that they're asking all of these questions, especially with Glansman's and, you know, the ultra rares and everything, you're starting to see, okay, hold on a second. Why do three quarters of these people have connective tissue issues? Or why do three quarters of these people have asthma or something like that. And so now these researchers are like, oh, hold on a second. Maybe there's something to that. Like maybe 
this has now affected this. And it and it helps as people are now, people are, especially with glansmans, are living longer than they ever were considered to be able to live. And now that comes with, all right, the typical issues of age, rheumatoid arthritis, or to get knee replacements, hip replacements, right. that type of thing, or heart disease and having to get heart surgery. So when you're able to start recognizing some of those patterns and you're able to kind of head it off with other patients and let them know to look out for it. I mean, all around, you're just kind of getting better patient care overall, which I mean, this is the ultimate goal, right? Well, I know that this is an exciting time for me and for Peter with the ultra rares and with Glansman's with this focus kind of having shifted, medical communities finally kind of sitting up, taking notice and everything. How do you feel about it? Because you're you're similar in age to us. So you know that it really hasn't been up until these past, what, five, 10 years that it's really been at the forefront of everybody's mind. Very exciting. I mean, about time, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was really nice to be at the Leading Disorder Conference and in, in- having sessions on ultra rare disorders and meeting other individuals with ultra rares and having like our own little community, just the way individuals with hemophilia, like they, they have their own little community. And yeah. it's nice to have research people, like companies, pharmaceutical companies interested in ultra rare disorders and ultra rare bleed disorders. And, and asking questions. Asking, yes. Asking, be very exciting. So we had somebody who I was talking to. It's just somebody who was within the industry. She's kind of a consultant and stuff. And so she reached out to me and she goes, hey, so I have a company that's trying to decide whether or not they're going to go for FCA approval for Glansman's or if they're going to go towards something else. And they're on the fence about it. And what they've heard from healthcare providers is that what Glansman's patients have right now works fine. They don't need anything else. And I was like, what? Hold on. (laughs) No, 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 no. And she was like, okay, that's what I thought the answer was going to be. But I wanted to reach out to you. And so I immediately was like, options are great because one medicine is not necessarily going to work for everybody. Or what if we talked about this with the being able to get it approved with health insurance? Some medicine can get approved with health insurance and other medicines don't. Really just depends on your policy or your company or anything like that. Getting the phone calls and the questions now is really exciting because I can be like, hold on a second, because I know about 600 people who can tell you no, that's not the case. They want options. I think that this is where... We're headed in a really good direction. You know, patients' voices are starting to be heard. I hope they continue to be heard completely. So we always ask this last. I say always, like we've been doing this for years. (laughs) We always ask this last, but what would you say to your younger self about Glansman? What would your advice be? Glansman shaped the, the kind of person that I am, you know, I don't think I would be the same person if it wasn't for my glansman. My glansman's thrombostenia has, it, one, it led me to be a healthcare provider. So I know like, okay, you're going to be a healthcare provider. You're going to be successful and um, take care of individuals. It helps me relate to my patients a lot better. I can understand them because they are also going through a chronic 
condition. So at a certain level, I can relate to them. I'm more empathetic to individuals, right? I, I can see, it just makes me a little bit more compassionate as a therapist. And I, I'm very grateful for that. I, I never thought I would say that as a, as a young person. Now that I'm older and I'm so aware of kind of the world and what Glansman's has added to my life, I would not be the, the same kind of person if it wasn't for that. So I'm very grateful that I have it. I don't know what kind of person I would be. So we talked about the National Humanitarian Foundation's National Research Blueprint. If you're interested and you want to contribute to their mission, you can by participating in the Community Voices and Research so that is basically a bunch of surveys and stuff that will basically they tailor it to you. So as your answers go, it kind of builds in which surveys they send to you. We will link it in the show description if that is something that you're interested in. As as Mia said, it it does help with figuring out what gaps they're trying to to kind of fill. We do have a couple of news items. So registration for the Glansman's Research Foundation's first educational conference is open. You can register at www.curegt.org. And we will continue announcing our speakers and their specialties via our website and social media. Speaking of social media, if you have Glansman's and you have not found us on Facebook, we have an amazing Facebook support group. So look us up and find that. And then remember that there are a limited amount of slots available for the conference. So if you know you're joining us, go ahead and grab your spot. And then last but not least, don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast. This will increase our visibility and help spread awareness of Glansman. And I just want to do a final thank you to Esme and to our listeners. And remember, you may be one in a million, but you're not alone.